Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Bruce Coburn. The Canadian singer-songwriter's more than 50-year career has produced 34 albums, 22 of which have been certified gold or platinum in his home country. He has won 13 Juno Awards and is a member of both the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Bruce joins us in a few moments to chat about his career and his new two-CD career-spanning compilation entitled Greatest Hits 1970-2020, which will be released on December 3rd. Part one. Well, Scott, uh, I know that you are a man of the world, a man about town, a successful man about town, and you have HBO Max. <laughs> I think that is the, the <laughs> marker of success. Yes. Yeah, that is a feather in your cap. It's a feather in your <laughs> TV streaming cap, um, which means that you are able to watch the Hall of Fame induction ceremony that just took place uh just a few weeks back. Yeah, they just uh, posted out on HBO this weekend. So we yeah. now get to see what went down at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which is uh, very cool. Yeah, and there are a few uh, inductees that I was particularly stoked to see. I mean, uh, long overdue for Tina Turner to yep. be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, love seeing the Foo Fighters go in. It's kind yep. of an early induction, but but you know, one of my favorite bands, so I'm glad to see that. And you got Todd Rundgren, Jay-Z, the Go-Go's, Carole King. I mean, that, that's a pretty strong list right there. I think Carol King, uh, particularly for a songwriting podcast, I mean, it's kind of mind blowing uh, a little bit to me that, uh, and maybe she's actually been inducted previously as a songwriter and she's going in as an artist. I actually have no idea if that's the case or not, but yeah. uh, I feel like in terms of songwriting contributions, uh, boy, she definitely should be there. Yeah. And I also think if you have no idea about something, it's good to just say it out loud on a public podcast. That's what the whole podcast is about, right. really. I mean, that's what podcasting is about, right. the, the whole genre. <laughs> Um, and, and you've got these others, you know, that, like the Early Influence Award at Kraftwerk, Gil Scott Heron, Charlie Patton, Musical Excellence Award with the LL Cool J, Billy Preston, Randy Rhodes, and Clarence Avant getting the Ahmed Erdogan Award. Um, I'll fast forward through some sections of this, but I'm excited to watch uh, Foo Fighters perform. I think they were inducted by Paul McCartney. Yeah, that's um, pretty good when you get inducted by Paul McCartney. That is pretty good. Um, it got me thinking about just the Hall of Fame in general and, and what the concept of that is because you see some artists go in and you think, okay, they're going in because they're famous. And that makes sense because it's a Hall of Fame. Right. And then you see some artists go in because of greatness and they're not mm. necessarily famous, you know, to the, the household name. Right. You know, kind of thing. But they are in there because they belong in there because of their greatness and because of what they contributed to the whole genre of rock and roll. The question I have is, does the Hall of Fame acknowledge fame or does it bestow fame? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I hear you. Like, do you have to be famous as a prerequisite to get into it? Or yeah. does the fact that you have gotten into it now mean this is your platform to fame? Like, Limb Biscuit is super famous. Right. Now, do they belong in the Hall of Fame? Are no. they famous? Can you be famous enough to belong in the Hall of Fame? 
like the like fame itself is the thing that yeah, gets you. Yeah, that's into the it. criteria. Yeah, yeah. Is that why they call it a hall of fame, or is it because they are <laughs> by being inducted in there, they're saying, okay, now you got our kind of fame. Right. We're bestowing upon you fame. Well, like there was Psy who had a huge hit with Gangnam Style. Exactly. Uh, that guy's famous. Yeah. Uh, that song's certainly famous. Right. Um, but. Uh, I think there's obviously a lot of attention paid to influence. Uh, like right. if you're going to go in the rock and roll hall of fame, you have to be influential in some way, um, which in some ways has nothing to do with fame. Right. I mean, the country music hall of fame just had some new inductees recently, correct? Yeah, they had, they actually had their medallion ceremony uh, this past weekend. Um, and Marty Stewart went in who has been on our show. Uh, yep. So congratulations to Marty. Uh, Hank Williams jr. Went in. He's famous. Um, <laughs> and how was he not already in there? Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting to me because I think Hank Williams Jr. Um, he's a bit of a controversial figure, uh, but but love him or hate him, right. um, that guy had an enormous impact on country music. He was the first guy to really bring Southern rock into country. Like yeah, Charlie and- Daniels came from Southern rock and brought you know he, he kind of transitioned, but Hank Jr. was already a country artist who had already had country hits. He fully embraced Southern rock and changed the whole aesthetic. You wouldn't have had Brooks and Dunn and right. you know all that stuff that came later if it weren't for, for Hank Jr. Well, I think he's a great example because even if he's controversial and if people want to quibble with his greatness, you can't quibble with the fame part of it. Right. And, That's true. and I think, you know, I think I think Hank belongs in there for a number of reasons. And I think those type of debates are kind of why guys like us exist. Well, de- and debating this kind of thing, specifically when you're talking about songwriters, the third person who was uh, inducted was Dean Dillon. Mm. And Dean Dillon is a absolute legend of Nashville songwriting. I right. think he wrote literally 20 something George Strait hits. Um, the guy is like, he wrote Tennessee whiskey, yeah. you know, which has kind of been revitalized in recent years with Chris Stapleton. Um, he is a songwriting legend, right? He's not famous. Um, I mean, in songwriting circles, he is, but see, they're bestowing fame upon mm. him. Yeah. Like his contributions to country music have warranted now the bestowing of fame because yes. So yeah. Is the, is the institution lifting up, somebody for their contributions yeah I, I see what you're saying i think it's a it's a completely pointless discussion but it's very yeah. interesting to me I, I i like that in a way hall of fames or halls of fame however you want to say it halls of fame right they're kind of pointless anyway right i mean it's it's recognizing something we already recognize yeah and it's kind of the thing of like when, when you get a, a, an award from like a performing rights organization they, they give the award to the song that's had the most radio play right Getting a lot of radio play is an award in itself because sure. you get a, a big check for that. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that, that they give awards to these songs that already kind of got what I consider to be a, a handsome reward. <laughs> um, right. So a Hall of Fame is kind of a funny thing anyway because you're just sort of recognizing what already exists. But well, it, be- it, it's a nice punctuation on a career. Since you brought this up, I just looked up uh, some notable Halls of Fame. I will tell you there is an Insurance Hall of Fame. <laughs> Uh, it honors leaders, innovators, and visionaries in the insurance field. It's located at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. So, okay. um, that place is only bestowing fame. <laughs> yeah, they're not recognizing recognizing famous, famous insurance, insurance salesmen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or uh, there's the Paper Industry International Hall of Fame. Oh well, you can be famous in the paper industry. I mean, Michael Scott, Dunder Mifflin, <laughs> clearly famous, of course. Um, there is the, uh, international clown hall of fame and research center <laughs> in Baraboo, Wisconsin. That's um, not real. That's real. 
Uh, so I would think like Bozo's probably in there. I mean, yeah, I would, I would like to think so. Is it in there? Is, is the insane is, cloud is, posse in there? <laughs> it's not the guy's name, is it? It's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't watch that crap. I think man. it's Penny Waste or something scares like that. Scares me. Penny White. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, can you imagine going to the International Clown Hall of Fame and I, Research I Center? If, for those of you who are doing some clown research. My fear of clowns is well known. Um, it's like it, going to the Snake Hall of Fame. No. <laughs> Indeed. There's a Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in Hayward, Wisconsin, oh, Wisconsin again. What's man? Uh, they're really trying to yeah, they are. bring in the tourist dollar in Wisconsin, yeah. I guess. Um, but to your point, if this is about recognizing versus bestowing fame, yeah. If it was about recognizing fame, I propose here today on Songcraft, and mm. and maybe I'm the first guy with this concept. There should be a fame hall of fame. Wait, only the most famous people are inducted <laughs> into the fame hall of fame. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. okay muhammad ali yeah absolutely maybe the first inductee in the fame hall of fame yeah garth brooks for sure <laughs> um like oprah oprah absolutely michael jordan. michael jordan does kim kardashian go into the fame hall of so fame? famous you're boring <laughs> it's like you're so big that you begin to become white noise right right, right? like yeah. there's there is no publication that if i saw oprah on the cover i'd be like what they put oprah on the cover <laughs> I would register the needle would move zero. Yeah, you have to be ubiquitous. But yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what Kim Kardashian is famous for other than being famous. So Oof. in a way, she might be the very embodiment of the fame. Hall Do fame. you have to be famous for doing something either good or neutral? Can you be famous for doing something bad? Can you can like a serial killer make it into the fame? Hall of Fame. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer's famous, and he's incredibly it's famous. Not because he had a great brownie recipe. I mean, we only know him for you <laughs> know for, for doing <laughs> awful things, right? So, yeah, who would get in for a brownie recipe? <laughs> Martha Stewart is she famous enough? Betty Crocker, of... bro. Uh, <laughs> fame Hall person? of Fame. <laughs> wow. Um, well, the Fame Hall of Fame. I I cannot think of a museum I would like to walk through less. <laughs> because I feel like there's nothing to tell me about these people yeah, because I feel like, like I know hey, their life stories now. There's Ray Charles again. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, maybe somebody will pick up on that idea. I mean, maybe. If, if so, it'll be in Wisconsin. <laughs> Part two. Singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn blends folk, jazz, rock, and world music influences into a unique blend that has earned him critical praise and near-mythic status in his Canadian homeland. He has won 13 Juno Awards and has been inducted into both the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Coburn is best known in the U.S. for songs such as Wondering Where the Lions Are, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, If a Tree Falls, and Pacing the Cage. He has released 34 albums over the course of a more than 50-year career, 22 of which have been certified gold or platinum in Canada. He received the Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement, which is the highest Canadian artistic honor. He holds more than a half dozen honorary doctorates for his musical contributions and is an officer of the Order of Canada. Ranging from spiritual musings to political activism, his songs have been covered by Judy Collins, Dan Fogelberg, Katie Lang, Jimmy Buffett, Bare Naked Ladies, Jerry Garcia, and others. His two-CD career-spanning compilation entitled Greatest Hits 1970-2020 to will be released on December 3rd. Bruce, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Nice to be with you. You've got a new double CD 
called Greatest Hits 1970 to 2020, um, celebrating 50 years, uh, a, a bit of a delayed 50 year celebration thanks to COVID, but uh, yeah. celebrating 50 years uh, as a musician. Um, and, you know, when you see an artist who has the, the breadth of catalog that you have um, and they put out a compilation album, you never really know who necessarily put that together. But in this case, uh, this was curated by you. You have comments uh, about the songs themselves uh, in the liner notes. And um, I'd be curious, first off, um, just at the choice to present the songs chronologically, which is actually my preference because I like to hear the development of, of an artist's career. But, you know, sometimes you see compilations and they're organized by theme or maybe just completely random. Uh, but I'd be curious what kind of thought process for you went into deciding here's the order that I want to present these songs as they actually came out. I, I actually don't remember there being much of a process. I think it just seemed like the obvious way to go. I, I, um, because it's uh, a retrospective in a way. I mean, we're, it's a it's a greatest hits, so called. Uh, we called it that because these are all these songs were all singles, which made uh, and 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 having that be the kind of theme of the collection made it very easy to pick the songs because we just picked the songs that were singles. Yeah, putting them in chronological order. I don't know. Um, Bernie Finkelstein, my manager, and I just sort of figured I, we didn't really discuss it. It just seemed like the obvious way to go. Yeah, I, we might have screwed it up actually somewhere in there. I, I have a feeling I can't quite remember what now, but I, I feel like there might be something slightly out of order in all of that. But in general, <laughs> it's chronological. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the first song uh, in the collection is "Going to the Country," and that's from your self-titled debut album uh, back in 1970. That was your first charting single in Canada. Soon they're gone behind the sign. tell us you know going all the way back about creating that song uh, about kind of how you wrote it um i got the idea i was actually dri driving I, I, I now i can't honestly remember whether i was driving myself or being driven but from ottawa to montreal through the rural countryside and uh i i wasn't actually going to the country i was going through it but uh, but the imagery just started presenting itself, and and I thought this this could be a song. And the original, like often when I write lyrics, um, I have a kind of rhythm in mind. I don't usually my songs start with lyrics, and they did back then, and and you know they do now. Huh. But but uh, so you know I'll start thinking of lyrics, and then when the lyrics are sort of have assumed some sort of shape, then then I start looking for music to carry them. But often in the early stages of the lyric process, there's a, I, I, there's a kind of imaginary rhythm that, that's, that those lyrics fit to. And in this case, uh, I was thinking of the old blues song, you know, going to Chicago uh, or mm. going to the country, mama, but I can't take you, whatever. There's, I mean, there's those kinds of uh, songs that I just 
have a you know a hazy memory of from from uh, those days you know in the '60s when I was listening to a lot of blues and uh, and learning or trying to learn guitar styles based on what I was listening to. Um, hmm. And uh, so I was imagining this kind of a shuffle rhythm in a way like this sort of, I'll go into country, you know, and, I, and it never worked as that. It just, I mean, I tried that. I didn't like it. And then, I, then you know, I just, it sat there for, the lyrics sat there for a relatively short period, as I recall. I, I, it's a bit hazy, but, uh, you know, maybe a week or something. And then I got the idea for, for the music that would work probably as many of my musical ideas do, it probably came from uh, sitting playing the guitar and just kind of discovering something. You're one of the uh, one of the only writers I can think of that we've talked to that's actually been somewhat committal to the idea of what comes first, lyrics or music, to the point that I don't even think I've ever asked anybody that question anymore because I'm like, well, nobody's going to even answer it. So I just want to thank you for coming out and telling us for you which comes first lyrics or music i appreciate that it's it's a question that used to get asked a lot and and you know but but i think that i, I doubt i'm the only person who or the only songwriter who operates that way but i i think it's relatively rare yeah. most of the people i've talked to who are songwriters will get a melody and then they try to find lyrics to work with it but i i just have always found it worked better for me to go the other way I probably have one or two exceptions over the years, but um, at this moment, can't think of what they would be. I, I, I feel like there are a couple, but it's, it's just, it just seemed like I can manipulate music better than lyrics. And I feel like the process of putting the music on the lyrics is a bit like scoring a film where you've got ideas, you've got imagery, you've got maybe there might be characters or whatever that needs support from the music and not, and not to be buried by the music. Hmm. I mean, having said it, it's probably rare to start with lyrics. I, I, I realize that actually probably every hip hop artist <laughs> starts with lyrics, <laughs> but, but uh, right. in, uh, you know, among the sort of my, my kind of songwriter, I think it is fairly rare. Yeah. Well, one of the songs uh, on the Greatest Hits album is One Day I Walk from the High Winds White Sky record in 1971. And in the liner notes, uh, you say that this song was kind of a bit of a recollection and reflection for you thinking about busking. One day I walk in flowers One I'm always interested in songwriters who have uh, any kind of history of, of busking in their past. And, and from what I understand, I believe that you were busking in, in Paris, maybe elsewhere. But um, that's an art that really requires grabbing people's attention quickly. You know, you have a very small window to, to sort of get get someone's attention as they pass by. And I'm curious how the skills learned from busking on the streets translates into the instincts that one develops as a songwriter for how to capture someone's attention quickly. I did play on the street in Paris for some weeks 
And I did that in the company of, uh, of a, uh, an American clarinetist who was on leave from teaching English with the Peace Corps in Ethiopia uh, and, uh, and a French trumpet player that, that, was the, that he had been playing with. Uh, and I was playing six string banjo, somebody, I, I had a guitar with me when I was there, but it wasn't loud enough to, to kind of carry the music with, 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 you know, a couple of horns like that. So, uh, we were doing kind of ragtime and the kinds of blues stuff that Elvis Presley covered because those were the songs I knew. And, um, it wasn't hard to get people's attention because there's a trumpet player blasting away at them. <laughs> so, and the banjo right. itself was actually obnoxious and loud. So, you know, it, 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 you know, it, getting people's attention was the easy part. Avoiding the attention of the police was the hard part because we, <laughs> right. didn't, we weren't we weren't legally doing this. And and uh, we did get busted at one point. What I learned from not not just from busking, I'd, I'd add to that the so a couple of the earliest gigs I did, because there was a one of them was playing in in a kind of large very large egg-shaped room in a club in Toronto um, that was kind of a psychedelic place. The, the Electric Circus was what it was called at the time, and there were probably electric circuses in every town, but this was the Toronto one. And, uh, you know, I was the guy that sort of the cannon fodder that opened the evenings on Friday and Saturday nights. And the you'd be playing with to a, a virtually empty room with the cash register going you know and, and staff yelling at each other and all that sort of stuff so uh, but way back in the murk at the back of the room there'd be you know a dozen or so people that got there early and i learned from that as the, and this is this happened in, in the context of the street too that you you realize that if there's anybody stopping at all somebody's hearing you like it, it, i mean it was it was a good lesson because um i had developed I'd be for my own out of my own insecurity i'd sort of taken on an attitude of well i don't care if anybody listens to me or not i'm just going to do what i do and screw them you know and, uh, and yeah. it, it, it made it, it made it possible to get on stage in spite of stage fright and stuff like that but it wasn't really a very good way to approach an audience but but uh um, you know, in the course of things, uh, uh, you learn that, yeah, look at here I am playing on the street. All these people aren't listening. Some of them stop and they don't want to give you money, but some of them stop and they do give you money. And, uh, and sometimes they stop and actually listen and give you money, which is relatively rare, but, <laughs> but it happens. And, um, and you think, yeah, okay. It, it's, it, it's productive of a certain confidence that, what you're doing uh, is going to be of interest to somebody. And, and that's uh, when you're starting out. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Well, you write uh, about the song, All the Diamonds in the World, uh, that it's about a crisis in a relationship, the recognition of the need for help beyond my own resources. And um, this is a big question, but around this time, you had a conversion to Christianity um, you kind of became known for a time as the guy who wrote about spiritual matters, who, who wrote about faith. Um, you later became the guy who wrote about social issues. Um, and I think a writer always wants to write about things that they care about things that they're struggling with, things that they're 
you know, are important to them. And whether that be one's spiritual experiences or whether that be um, one's criticisms of the way things are in the world, um, no one wants to kind of be pigeonholed as the writer of one kind of song or, or of one thing. And throughout your career, you know, I, I see that you've written about a, a broad range of subjects, whether they be spiritual or whether they be political or whether they just be hopeful or a love song or something that's just fun. Um, but in terms of your own artistic voice as a writer and a performer, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of that push and pull of when certain parts of the audience kind of want you to be one thing all the time or, or want to put you in a, in a certain box when there might be other things you might want to explore with your lyrics. Yeah. One, one of the things that I'm extremely grateful for in my life is that the bulk of my audience has been willing to kind of stay with me through a lot of different uh, changes of direction and uh, in terms of lyrical content, as you were describing, um, not everybody has, and and of course, but each time you come up with sort of an, a new angle, it attracts new people. So, uh, but then those people have a bias; they think that you are whatever it was that attracted them, and huh. and they have to unlearn that over time if they're going to continue to be in the audience. So, I mean, for me, it's yeah, I hate being pigeonholed. I I consciously made an album, one of the early albums, um, an album called Night Vision was uh and i don't usually apply this kind of thinking to what i'm doing uh because it's because it it, it just tends to come out in a more visceral way like just you know i i don't i don't have an agenda i i write whatever i think of whenever you know whenever i think of it in a manner in, in a context where i can actually work on it so uh but with the with the night vision album and a couple of other times over the years I've felt it necessary to kind of make a point uh, because I, you know, that, that was the fourth album and I'd made three albums that were very acoustic and, and very um, full of songs that, that had a lot of nature imagery and so on. And, and the song going to the country had got a lot of attention uh, in Canada. So, you know, I was getting pigeonholed by critics and, and others as a kind of back to nature guy, like one of those, people in, in that era kind of fleeing off to the hills and going to build a dome and live in it, you know, or whatever. And, and I, that wasn't me. And I didn't want to be stuck in that mold. So I intentionally kind of made an album that wasn't like that, <laughs> that had electric guitar on dr and drums on it. TV preachers scream, come on along. Feel like Fay Ray face to face with King Kong. But Mama just wants to barrel hoes all night long. Mama just wants to barrel hoes all night long. Mama just wants to barrel hoes all night long was a it would be a lie to call it a hit, but it got a lot of good positive attention. And when I sang it in shows, people would hoot and holler and kind of get into it. And and uh, I was used to audiences that sat there, you know, with in a state of reverence and focused closely on all the nuances and 
and to have a you know big room full of people hooting and hollering was terrifying and, and i thought oh my god i'm doing something wrong here huh. so so uh i backed off from that and then then the next album after that the one with all the diamonds on it uh is is the opposite extreme again it's gone like completely acoustic it's just two acoustic guitars and voice for most of it uh but the song all the diamonds was one that caught caught people's attention and it does mark the the moment in a way that i decided i was going to identify myself to myself as a christian after that that episode in in stockholm which created the song i i you know it was like okay well uh, it's kind of like you know go or get off the pot kind of so so i went <laughs> right, right. Two thousand years and half a world away Dying trees still The next big one of those was was when Stealing Fire came out uh, in the early 80s, and that was full of stuff about Central America and and uh, some other things, that, as you said, social issues. And um, so I got the reputation for being a political singer, and and the people who tuned in at that point were were not always comfortable with the spiritual stuff that had preceded it, and uh, or that came after either, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, so. It's more of a balancing act for the audiences than for me. I mean, I'm like I just kind of do what I do. <laughs> I have I say <laughs> right. the things I think of to say, and and I hope I say them in a way that that's that touches people. But um, you know, some people uh, once in a while I get I get drawn into reading something about my that's impressive about myself. Most of the time I avoid it, but but uh, my cousin sent me a, a link to an interview that I'd done with somebody, and and. And, uh, um, and it was it was good. It was it came out okay, and I came off okay. But then at the end of it, there was uh, somebody's comment. You know, was like, oh, "Yeah, Coburn's a brilliant musician. Too bad he's a religious nutcase." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, not everybody likes this stuff. You know, but but uh, I mean, what are you going to do? It's like you can't please everybody all the time. Well, that's that's a cliche. I mean, it's a cliche for a reason because yeah. yeah, so true. And you can you can never read the comments if you want to have any faith in humanity. <laughs> no, that's for sure <laughs> about anything. Actually, you know, I'm just thinking a, a classic case of another great interview ruined at the end by the interviewer saying something dumb that which which we've done a number of times. <laughs> um, you. Know, I, I want to ask you uh, about the song "Wondering Where the Lions Are" and, and the season and era that surrounded that song for you. Um, th that was a, a kind of a turning point. That the song charted highly in the U.S., kind of your first big impact here, and you even appeared on Saturday Night Live. I mean, if if you want to go from being perceived as something, you know, backcountry, there's nothing more urban than appearing on Saturday Night Live. Some kind of ecstasy together. 
But my question for you was, was that kind of success, did it turn out to feel like what you'd always dreamed or maybe what you'd always feared? How, how did that um, kind of hit you just as not only as a writer, but as a human? The experience of doing Saturday Night Live was utterly terrifying. Hmm. Um, not because of how we were treated. We were treated perfectly well. I mean, the, the staff, everybody was kind of on edge. I mean, I have pretty vivid memory of being in that studio and, and people were on edge. They, they, it was just before the, the original uh, cast members all kind of pulled out. And there was a lot of tension among them, it seemed like. And, and you know, there was a lot of TVs always kind of a, uh, you know, there's a hustle kind of factor about it. You, you've got to, okay, you know, you wait and you wait and you wait and you get your makeup on and you stand around and you do it, you go through your song and then you stand around some more. And then, then all of a sudden it's like, get it right now or else. And that feeling, because it's, it's national TV, right? You can't, I mean, yeah. it's a big deal. So, and I felt that I feel it less now than, you know, having done all these years worth of shows and stuff. But back then, uh, you know, I wasn't exactly a green at that point, but it was, it was a big deal to be on national TV. So I was very nervous and, and, and the, the atmosphere didn't help that any, but, um, but it had a huge effect. I mean, and, and people still make references to it, uh, you know, cause it, cause uh, with the internet and everything, those things never die. <laughs> right. <laughs> national tv now doesn't just back then it meant people would see it once and you had one chance to get it right and and but now people see it forever and you had your one chance to get it right so thank god we kind of got it right, <laughs> <laughs> right. um well i want to ask you about the song rumors of glory which uh is another one of your your well-known songs and also the title that you chose uh for your memoir i'd love to hear a bit about that song and, and how that one came together for you yeah i i i'd have to look up to see where i actually wrote it i know that i got the idea in new york and i think i i think i wrote it there um but um yeah i just remember standing on this on the street in manhattan uh a, on a winter evening it, i mean i it was cold. I don't remember exactly when it was now, but that again is that, that's easily found out. But um, I just remember standing there on on this evening, and it was that it was getting dark, but it was the time of day when everybody leaves their office, and and you know, so the streets are relatively empty for New York, and then all of a sudden they're completely packed with people, and then in a matter of fifteen minutes, everybody's disappeared into the subways and they're gone, mm-hmm. and wow. and. And so this is that's what was happening, and I'm I'm looking up at the sky up between the buildings, and there were two jet contrails that crossed each other, lit pink by the setting sun, and it, it was very beautiful. And and this so this forming this cross in the sky, and and that just kicked off the song. Like there's these uh, you know these people kind of shuffling in the cold dark semi-darkness and 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 this this beautiful sky above and um yeah it just went from there
backtracking here a little bit. You were talking about the idea of lyrics coming first. When something like that happens, when that moment of inspiration strikes and you start kind of getting some lyrics, are you almost feeling like a dummy groove or like a dummy melody that's a, a, a placeholder for you? Or are these lyrics almost coming to you as a as a poem would just completely divorced from uh music and i know it obviously happens differently at different times but just generally speaking there's usually a rhythm in my head um that gives uh, you know something for the lyrics to hang on but it's not always i mean sometimes the one but the songs that don't have that have often ended up being the spoken word type things which are you know are where rhythm in the lyrics is not really an issue. Um, so most of the time, yeah, there's, there's, I, and it probably was the case with that one. I was fascinated uh, with reggae in that era and listening to a lot of it. And there's, you know, the reggae influence in the way we ended up recording that song. Um, it Trying to translate reggae grooves into my kind of acoustic guitar playing presented some challenges and 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 led to some sort of guitar choices or gu guitar um, approaches that um, that I I thought were interesting to me because they were I had to come up with some way to 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 kind of include elements of what a reggae band would would have in their music but be able to do it solo on the guitar and and uh, it doesn't come out sounding anything like reggae, <laughs> but, but, but it, I mean, when I do it solo, especially, but that notion was probably there too. Like this is, especially with respect to songs of a spiritual nature, because reggae, a lot of reggae was about that. Yeah. And so, uh, and that was the part of that was, those were the reggae songs that interested me, the, the ones with some content other than just kind of sexual content or whatever. Um, the, the lyrics that I write are, are not intended to be read on a page. Uh, they're, I mean, some people like the idea of putting them on a page and we certainly did that for the, for my book where a lot of the book is talking about how these songs came to be and, and how, how they relate to my, uh, what I'd like to think of at least as a deepening understanding of spirituality, but but uh, the songs themselves are really meant to be heard, not read. Right. And so rhythm, rhythm becomes very important then. You know, you mentioned your album Stealing Fire a few minutes ago, and Lovers in a Dangerous Time is one of the absolute classics from that record. know that from the bare naked ladies version uh, which was a, a great success for them um, but one of the things that that stuck out to me was the fact that bono references uh, your song in the u2 song god part two on rattle and hum um, which that in itself is, is crazy because you, you've already got a song that's kind of a response to john lennon's god 
Um, and then he's going to reference your song. So a great songwriter referencing another great songwriter in a song that's a response to another great songwriter. Um, <laughs> you know, at that point, did someone just like call you and say, uh, hey, man, you probably need to get a copy of U2's new record. And he, they're talking about you. Um, I, it, something like that. I, I think it was in a conversation <laughs> with somebody, but and I didn't, you know, I. I, I didn't think about it one way or the other. I mean, I was aware of you too. I, I, I had not really listened to their records much. I had, I, I had an, a very early album of theirs, which I thought was quite good, but, but I was just listening to a lot of other stuff and hadn't got around to it and uh, um, hmm. to, to, uh, to their current things. But, um, but yeah, somebody, I hadn't, had I met Bono at that point? I think so. Because he turned up, uh, he made a point of coming to meet me actually uh, at a festival in England called the Greenbelt Festival, which is bills itself as a Christian arts festival. And um, I mean, it's that's just in the North American context that would keep people away hmm. or attract people that didn't appreciate what what they found when they got there. <laughs> but in England, it works uh, because the, the people don't have quite such a narrow view of these things. Uh, at least most people, but Bono had sort of arranged with the festival people to sort of sneak in disguised as a parking monitor. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he's wearing a baseball cap and a, and, a, and a reflective vest and carrying a flashlight and, you know, sort of wow. done up like somebody directing traffic. And, and, and uh, <laughs> he was spirited. He came in, came in the dark and was spirited into the back stage of the tent that I was playing in and we had a nice chat hmm. and that, that he had he had heard that album and so then after that at some point they did go on part two and he mentions um mentions the line from lovers in a dangerous time and i thought well that's pretty cool i mean uh, i was I, I have to say though it, it's a weird thing to do to use the lines from somebody else's song on purpose. <laughs> i mean we all do it by accident because there's only so many things you can say and so yeah. many ways to say it in the world, you know, but, 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 uh, but it, it just seemed like an interesting thing to do, but also slightly weird. Well, yeah, I, I just sort of, and, and the line that, that he references is the line about kicking the darkness until it bleeds daylight. And I, I like to think that Bono was so envious of that line. He's like, how can I put it in my song? I can't just steal it. I guess I'll just say I heard a singer say it, <laughs> and, and that'll work. Well, it was a gracious way to do it. I mean, I, if he'd stolen it, then it would have been a whole other thing. And I, I then you I got problems. Think, yeah, I don't think stealing is Bono's thing, really. Uh, no. Yeah. But uh, but I I uh, um, yeah, I, I didn't quite know how to feel when I first heard it, and then I then I decided that I thought it was great. <laughs> so yeah. So that's what I think now. Well, I think for a lot of us in the U.S., um, If I Had a Rocket Launcher was another song from that same era, also on Stealing Fire from 1984, uh, that made an impact here. And you kind of touched on this a moment ago, um, talking about how you kind of got, uh, you know, pigeonholed as the acoustic pastoral, uh, you know, rural kind of guy. And then you swung, you know, to this very much more, urban oriented political type of stance, which is very much represented, um, on the stealing fire record. And, um, Paul and I actually have this ongoing conversation about a larger shift in music in this, from the seventies to the eighties, 
that very much mirrors that. I mean, you look at the Eagles records in the 70s, they're almost country records. And by the 80s, it's Joe Walsh, you know, lead guitar stuff. Um, Doobie Brothers is an example. Uh, Elton John had that kind of more rural type of thing going on in the early 70s. And by the 80s, it's, you know, we, we sort of think of like the... 70s is marijuana and the 80s is cocaine <laughs> it's like yeah. a total shift or peyote and cocaine yeah, it's it's like countryside <laughs> to 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 this hyper urban thing and when you touched on that a moment ago it it uh it, it, i i perked up at that because I thought, man, it's something we've been talking about of this whole general shift in music um, from the people who are considered kind of folkies in the 70s to getting very much uh, city oriented and issues oriented in in the 80s. And um, you kind of talked about that being a, a personal shift for you. But I'm wondering if the the larger context of that happening in music in general had a, an impact on you. Um. I think so. I mean, nobody's free from the currents that are flowing around in the air, you know, uh, no, no matter what genre they're working in. And uh, I mean, for me, I got tired of my own company in the middle of the 70s, decided to have a band to tour with. And and I was doing enough the kind of gigs that would support that. So that was good. And but then, you know, at first it was a very acoustic kind of light thing. And, and then we got a drummer. And once you have a drummer, you have to have electric guitar. Right. And uh, or at least you did back then because they didn't have effective means of amplifying acoustic guitars. And so, you know, that that one thing led to another. But at the same time as that, I, I was listening to, you know, having spent years avoiding listening to any kind of pop music because I didn't want to be influenced by it. Um, I kind of moved out of that phase and I was catching up with David Bowie. I was catching up with, uh, uh, with, with, you know, the music on the radio and, and, and I had been introduced to reggae and, and then, and punk came along and I had the Sex Pistols record and I had, I was listening to the clash and it was like, oh yeah, I want to do that shit too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think, I, I, I mean, it wasn't because I wanted to sound like those acts but and i and i think we were all feeling something similar that there was a change in the air and every you okay the the whole decade of the 70s was more or less it started off um in a in an original kind of way from the singer-songwriter point of view at least um as a you know uh and with with the emphasis on a kind of sensitivity on uh thoughtful content uh, and uh on on in a listening atmosphere that didn't involve moving your bodies around um but after a decade of that everybody was getting tired of being sensitive and you know and and everybody wanted to boogie a bit more so plus the the aesthetics of the whole society changed they there you went from that acceptance of of that kind of uh for want of a better word sensitivity to people just wanting money Hmm. it's like the kids the kids in college at the time were you know it's like and or the the young artists you know the young the young musical artists are like oh i don't want to make an album i want to make a hit single yeah, right you know i don't want to i don't want an album full of thoughtful songs i just want to be on the radio and and um it it, it, it was just part of the whole tenor of the times and you know at the, it's, it's reflected in the in the sound synthesizers were new 
at that point, or at least functional ones that you could use everywhere and did, did everything were new and drum machines were new and everybody had to have those and right. and it changed the sound of things and it changed the way recording was done and it mm. you know i mean people were going around telling me guitar was obsolete i should put, switch to keyboards because nobody's going to listen to guitar anymore ever uh you know in the early 80s right, right. i didn't buy into it of course and and it, and it turned out to be utterly wrong but <laughs> but uh, but that was the, it was all these things were kind of flowing in the air and it all conspired to uh, allow for a little more rock and roll in things for me. How many kids they've murdered Only God can say not mistaken i don't think that there was a co-written song on one of your albums uh until the the fifth record with the song seeds on the wind which is credited to you and the producer uh, gene martinek um but on the um compilation album there's only one uh co-written song which is stolen land uh, which addresses the plight of indigenous people and is a song that you collaborated on with Hugh Marsh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seems to me that that there probably haven't been more than a dozen songs from your entire career that are co-written. You're very much a, a self-contained solo writer, which makes me that much more interested in the songs like Stolen Land, where there is a co-writer and you know, when you have a writer who very much operates autonomously, um, how do you know when it's time to bring somebody else in or to, or to follow the instinct to to collaborate versus go it alone? Yeah, you know, these things, they ju- it just comes up. Um, in the case of Stolen Land, uh, it, it was my idea to involve Hugh in it. I, I, I w- was kind of in a hurry. <laughs> I, we, we had a gig coming up um, in support of legal fees for a whole lot of uh, Haida people, um, indigenous people from the northwest coast of Canada. And setting our, setting that up, I realized I didn't have a song that really talked about what the whole thing was about. And so I thought, you know, and I wanted to have a song like that. I, I mean, I it, it was it had been I, I won't say a conscious thing, but it was in the back of my mind for a long time. It, you know, I, I, I got these lyrics together, uh, but I was not, I, I wasn't quite sure where to take it musically. Uh, Hugh was in the band with the, in my band at the time. Uh, and he was very into R and B and he was, <laughs> you can hear that on the, on the, the record of, of Stolen Land. It's, it's the most I've ever sounded like Prince, <laughs> and, you know, and and probably will ever sound. But but it it, it came out well. I mean, so but anyway, he brought that kind of R and B feel to it.
so you know but uh, there there haven't been many as you said been haven't been many collaborations over the years and I don't know how people do it I, you know the Nashville guys who or not just guys men and women who get, get together you know they make an appointment to get together for two hours on Tuesday to write a song I I don't know how anybody does that I can't write like that hmm. it's, it's like I, I need time and space and quiet and uh, freedom from distraction and you know, and and I have to wait for the ideas to come. But uh, maybe I should have learned from that that I actually can push it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, All right. You know, you've never been shy about taking on big issues in your songs. And I look at a, a song like "If a Tree Falls" uh, from 1988, and I mean, what bigger issue is there than the fate of the planet? Um, that was a really successful song. And oftentimes we look at a song and, and we want to sort of compliment it and take satisfaction in the fact that the song is still relevant today like it was the day it was written. But when I think about the fact that that song is still relevant today, it actually kind of makes me sad. Oh, yeah, no kidding. All these people are listening, obviously. It's, it's charting, but then, you know, what's happening? And, you know, there's, there's a role that discontent has to play when, when we're writing these types of songs to, to attack problems in the world. But then how do you deal with the discontent after the song has been written and received and the, the issue still persists? You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a paradox and an unfortunate one that uh, uh, Jackson Brown and I were talking about this one time a while back that because he, he had done a lot of stuff around Central America at the, when, when, when we were all paying attention to Nicaragua and its efforts to kind of get free from the global system of of exploitation but uh that um people get excited about the issue then they come and hear the show and they think that because they they, they came to see you play these these songs that they've done their part right and they go home and they go back to normal like it, it, it it's like we want to say what we want to say and we want to be heard and we hope that people will be moved to uh, to get involved in these things when they end up when, when we end up writing songs about them but uh fact is and some people do of course I've, i mean i've heard from a lot of people who who were inspired by the songs on stealing fire and others to kind of to get involved in in issues like that but um but for most people i think it it, it Kind of, it's like I gave it the office, you know. I, I, okay, well, I did that already. I, I, uh, right, right. I, now I don't have to do anything anymore. And it's, uh, so, and yet we can't not say what has to be said because of that. Uh, with respect to the welfare of the planet, I mean, you're right, there's no bigger issue. And it's an issue that the, the fact that we're still looking at the destruction of Brazilian rainforest. And, and other rainforests around the world, the lungs of the friggin' planet. Hmm. <laughs> we're still, yeah. we're still just, you know, we're still giving ourselves lung cancer, yeah. basically, uh, as a species. And, uh, you know, it's 25 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later. So, I mean, I, this stuff wasn't news when, when I wrote If a Tree Falls. It was, it was, uh, you know, it had been around for a while. I mean, uh, those those same environmental concerns were around for a long time. But um, I mean, since the '50s, really, when it was when people started paying attention uh, to the negative effects of industrialization, and and so 
you know, uh, you know, here we are. From Sarawak to Amazonas, Costa Rica to mangy BC hills, Cortez rhythm of falling timber. What kind of currency grows in these new deserts, these brand new floodplains? mid-90s, I was a college intern. Uh, I lived in Nashville at the time where I grew up, and I was a, an intern at a record label uh, that was putting out this record called Strong Hand of Love, a tribute to Mark Hurd. And uh, I, I did not know who Mark Hurd was at the time, and that was kind of my introduction to, to Mark Hurd. And uh, I want to ask you about a song that's not on the compilation, but it's a song uh, Closer to the Light from the Dart to the Heart album in 1994. And it's a song, um, kind of a, I guess, a tribute to Mark, um, who I've read you call one of your favorite songwriters. And, you know, we're always interested in what uh, songwriters we speak to admire uh, about other writers. Um, so it'd be great to, to kind of get your thoughts on, on Mark and what it was about his approach to the craft that you found uh, inspirational. Well, his, uh, to me, he brought a, a really fresh approach to writing songs with spiritual content, with specifically Christian content, without ever saying Jesus in the songs. I mean, once in a while he does, but, it, but, but uh, the songs really were faith-based, but really uh, like really interesting in terms of lyric writing and, and you know, he was, could come up with compelling melodies and, and uh, knew how to make good sounding records. I mean, it, was a, it was a total package. There were a couple of his albums in particular. I, his, his work is uneven and not all of his songs are, are, are top notch, but the ones that are really are. Hmm. And um there was enough of those to, to make it a pleasure to hear. Uh, I think the first album of his I heard was an album called Dry Bones Dance that, uh, and I, a friend had sent it to me, he said, you gotta hear this. And I, I put it off for a long time because you get sent things and somebody thinks they're great and usually they're disappointing. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, you know, so one day I thought, uh, you know, I haven't, I, I, I really should listen to this. And I'm driving in my car, I put the thing on and I just started, it, it was my heart just felt like it, it it expanded on the spot listening to that music and and the, the i just there were i just started laughing driving it was so full of joy and and um but some of them aren't as strong as others lyrically but but it, when he was on boy it's uh, just it was great stuff hmm. i mean i yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of great songwriters in the world, and and have been. I mean, you know, uh, Mark Hurd was great. Nobody's ever been better than Hoagie Carmichael. I mean, yeah. uh, like it's uh, or Bob Dylan. I mean, we're you know, those are kind of models. That, uh, you know, that are are a bit more high profile and kind of out there. But um, I mean, out there in the public view. But the but the uh, um, it's just it's for me it's quite rare to be 
grabbed by songwriting in that way like uh um, that you know because there's so many of us writing songs and 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 it's easy to uh well okay it's 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 easy for the artists to uh to slip into a kind of generic mode right right uh without realizing it and it's also easy for the listener to make assumptions that what you're hearing is 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 more generic than it really is so both of these things happen and um and it it means that you know most of what i hear doesn't interest me that much or doesn't catch me right off at least but um you know once in a while something gets through and it's uh, it's exciting not with mark heard you know, the song Pacing the Cage is a song on the compilation that represents your album, The Charity of Night. Sunset is an angel weeping Holding out a bloody sword No matter how I squint I cannot Make out what it's pointing toward Sometimes you feel like you've lived too long Days drip slowly on the page You catch yourself facing the cage And that's an, an album that uh, you co-produced with Colin Linden, and he's that's a name that we've seen, you know, uh, frequently uh, since, since that point. And I just wanted to ask you a bit about the role of a producer and and kind of what that means to you in terms of getting your songs from you know the point of creation to the point of delivery, and and how important that right producer relationship is for you. Very important. Uh, um, you know, I haven't worked with that many different producers. Gene Martinek produced my first ten albums, and then one after that as well. Uh, and um, in the 80s, John Goldsmith and, and, and a, a couple of them, his working partner, Carrie Crawford, produced a couple, but, um, but uh, uh, and then Thibaut Burnett produced a couple in the early 90s. But uh, in general, uh, you know, I've, I, I feel like if I have a good relationship with a producer, why, why mess with it? <laughs> if it's, mm, as long right. as it's working, I mean, eventually, you have to change things up because you get into too habitual a way of operating, I think, um, yeah. you know, both in terms of creative choices and just in terms of how things get done, it becomes too routine and, and, and every now and then there needs to be a, a break in the routine. But, um, but Colin, uh, Colin had been playing uh, in my band with me for a couple of tours and he had, and, and he, He'd been involved. He played on uh, the the album before the one you mentioned called "Dart to the Heart." Um, he played on that one, and and I it sort of squeezed a Christmas album in there too that he that he uh, had played on. And I just I really liked working with him, and he'd been absorbing tons of uh, knowledge from T Bone about being in the studio. And I mean, he already knew stuff anyway. But he'd been learning it on his own, but. But he, you know, he acquired a vast amount of lore from from uh, T Bone Burnett, and and um, so when it came time to do the Charity of Night, I I I didn't have a producer at that point, and but I knew that Colin knew what he was doing in the studio. I called myself a co-producer because I wanted 
to have some formal degree of control over what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I thought I needed to do that. I, it, after a while, we did a couple of albums like that. And then I just stopped calling myself co-producer and he just became the producer because, and he's done all the albums since then. Um, and because he really was the one doing the work, it just, you know, and, and I, after we tried it out a couple of times, it, I realized that, you know, I didn't need to uh, give myself that sort of illusion of control <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so, you know, I stepped out of the production role. I, I've never been knowledgeable enough about, about the techniques uh, of miking, about, you know, just studio technology in general. Um, and I, I have, I feel like I have better things to do than try to learn that where when there are so many people around who can who who have that down and Colin's one of those people so you know I we haven't talked about it yet but I imagine he'll be doing the next album too who knows well now he knows I guess he, <laughs> he will after this yeah <laughs> I hope he says yes <laughs> um you know it it stood out to me that on the compilation album um that uh, there wasn't the the representation of the instrumental stuff, and and I look at a song like you know the end of all rivers from your uh, Speechless album in two thousand five, um, which is one of your more popular songs uh, on Spotify, um, and you know you talked about <laughs> at one point people saying man you got to get away from the guitar and and go to keyboards, um, you know you are a a very Uh, accomplished guitar player there are a lot of people in kind of the singer songwriter uh mode who play chords and they adequately accompany themselves uh, on the songs they've written but you, you are a true uh instrumentalist love to to kind of get your thoughts as someone who is also a great lyricist on expressing yourself musically um through only an instrument without using any words and and you know in what way that creation process or expression process might be uh, a little different for you than writing what we think of as kind of a traditional song with words it's very different process Uh, um i mean in, in a certain way, I mean, it, it's because you're dealing with sound. It's they have they're similar, obviously. You're dealing with with music, but uh, but guitar pieces for me, instrumental pieces, tend to come from sitting around playing the guitar and stumbling on something hmm. that sounds like a theme that could be developed. Uh, but it's it's been in me all along. I mean, I when I started. When I started getting interested in music, when I got out of high school, I went to music school. I wasn't thinking of myself as a songwriter at all, I did, or a singer. I mean, to me, I, I was a guitar player, and I wanted to. Uh, I went to school to study uh, 
jazz composition. I, I was I imagined myself writing music for large jazz ensembles, wow. and that's what I that's what I studied. Um, I just studied it for a while, then I dropped out and joined a rock band. But <laughs> but I did study it, and 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 it it just. Um, that it never left that that love of instrumental music and of this the kind of imaginative space that uh that that an instrumental piece can can create um like to me when i when i hear music without words it doesn't well actually a lot of the time there's a kind of uh, mental image of architecture almost that is created uh if i listen to chick korea playing a piano solo or if I I listen to uh, Bach pieces or Japanese flute music I mean there's a space that's created by the sound and and by the 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 kind of geometry of the music itself uh, that uh, I find really thrilling hmm. and uh, and inviting and so you know I like to be able to try to do that too and I, uh, once in a while when I'm just playing jamming for myself I can get into that kind of space I mean if I'm performing for people it's harder because you're thinking of the effect on the other people uh, you know and and right. I can't separate my my own uh kind of headspace from that but um but really it's um uh, instrumental music's always been kind of a, a, a always felt like something that I wanted to be part of what I do. And, and it has been in varying degrees over the years. You got less of it in the eighties because I was uh, working with bigger bands and I had to shrink guitar parts in order to make room for the, all the keyboard stuff and everything that was going on. But, um, but then since then it's kind of come back and back. And then, you know, the last album I put out was the instrumental album that came out a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Crowing Ignites and all guitar pieces basically um but uh but that's yeah i it's it's a it's a fun side of what i do <laughs> yeah well the uh most recent release is the double cd greatest hits 1970 to 2020 a fantastic retrospective of a 50-year career that you know by definition only skims the surface the entire albums that aren't even represented on that because you've just been so prolific um but bruce we thank you for spending a few moments with us today and uh and sharing a bit about your process and and some of the great songs in your catalog and um just uh, really appreciate it thank you it's nice nice uh, talking with you and I, and I really appreciate your interest thanks for listening We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. 